chapter 19, I'll begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, nor gods. I am the Lord your God. And if you offer a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it of your own free will. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, and on the next day. And if any remains until the third day, it shall be burned in the fire. And if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an abomination. It shall not be accepted. Therefore, everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned the hallowed offering of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you at all, all, all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the, the blind, but, you sh but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the per person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come, up, uh, come upon you. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a con concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom, for this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death, because she was not free. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, a ram as a trespass offering. The priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed. And the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year you may eat its fruit, that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. You shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. Do not pro prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry and the land become full of wickedness. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them, to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. 
And if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. Amen. Well, the last couple of weeks we've been here in Leviticus chapter 19. We saw the emphasis on religious observances in verses 1 to 8. And then we've also seen the emphasis on neighborly love in verses 9 to 18. Now, as we approach verses 19 to 37, I need to remind you once again that I'm not a rabbi. We are separated from these goings on by many, many years, and there are things that are a bit puzzling and perplexing to us on this side of redemptive history. This, or, or, or rather, these laws are typically classified as what we call ceremonial law. And ceremonial law refers to that body of law given to the children of Israel in the Old Covenant that spoke concerning things to come. In fact, I'll just remind you from our confession. In Second London Confession, chapter 19 of the law of God, we have a wonderful statement concerning God's giving of the law to Adam in paragraph 1. Then we see its codification, the moral law, in paragraph 2. And then we have ceremonial law in paragraph 3 and judicial law in paragraph 4. Now, what that does is it highlights the Reformed uh, distinction in terms of the law of God. There's a threefold division, the moral law, Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, those things that are non-changing, those things that are trans-covenantal, those things that apply to all men wherever they might live in the continuum of history. Then you've got ceremonial law, which, as I said, was given to the nation of Israel. And I'll just read 19.3. Besides this law, the moral law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. And then it goes on to say, and partly holding forth divers' instructions of moral duties. So ceremonial law does reflect what goes on in the sanctuary. So ceremonial law certainly does affect the, the cult in, in Israel, the worship apparatus. But it, uh, there are moral duties involved as well. And then the confession goes on to say, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of reformation are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, who is furnished with power from the Father, for that end abrogated and taken away. Now, they were abrogated and taken away because they were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So these things, as the confession says, prefigured Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. But as we look at this particular list, we will see that they partly hold forth divers' instructions of moral duties. And of course, that other division of the law is the judicial law. And basically, the judicial law, to them, also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So in essence, what you have in judicial law is laws governing the children of Israel during their tenure in the land. 
Now, to see this in some sense more systematically presented, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you see the moral law given in Exodus chapter 20. You see judicial laws then given in Exodus 21 to 23. You have the ratification of the old covenant in Exodus chapter 24. And then from 25 to 40, you basically have ceremonial law in the building of the tabernacle and in the institution of the priesthood. So as we come to a passage like this, again, there are things that are moral to be sure. Some of the laws are hard to pinpoint. Is this judicial? Is this ceremonial? Typically, we need to, to, to approach it understanding that the Hebrew Old Testament is written, not written like uh, Burkhoff's systematic theology. We like to have everything categorized in specific places. That's not usually what you find when you go to the Torah or the Pentateuch. Now again, you see it there at least loosely in Exodus 20 and following, but you certainly see these things mingled together here in Leviticus 19. So as we come now to these miscellaneous laws, there are several. We're going to just categorize them this way. First, the prohibition against mixed breeding in verses 19 to 25. The prohibition against pagan practices in verses 26 to 28. Third, the prohibition against sacred prostitution, and I'll explain that when we get there, in verses 29 and 30. Fourth, the prohibition against necromancy in verse 31, communicating with the dead. Fifth, the responsibility to honor the elderly in verse 32. Sixth, the responsibility to love the stranger in verses 33 to 34. And then finally, the necessity of fair trade in verses 35 to 36. And then the chapter ends with the concluding exhortation on the necessity of obedience to the God who spoke these words. Remember in chapter 19, at verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this wasn't a social construct. This wasn't the best idea that men had. It wasn't the case that you had a particular lawgiver that went up on a mountain and then came down of his own. We have the lawgiver Moses functioning as a mediator, giving God's law to the children of Israel for their conduct as the covenant people. So let's look first at the prohibition against mixed breeding in verses 19 to 25. Notice the instruction on livestock and garments in verses Nine, uh, verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your livestock breed with another kind. You shall not sow your field with mixed seed, nor shall a garment of mixed linen and wool come upon you. Now, in some sense, we've already been prepared for this, or at least prepared in this direction because of the food laws. Remember, their, their diet was uh, very much regulated by God in terms of clean and unclean animals. So when we drop here into 1919, it ought not to shock us. Again, it's not something that we practice. It's not something that is typical for us. But it is something that was to distinguish the children of Israel from the nations around them. And in terms of the theological principle, I think Gordon Wenham explains it well. He says, the divisions within the animal kingdom mirrored those within the human world, between clean and unclean men, between Israel and the nations. In creation, God separated between light and darkness, waters and waters. This ban on all mixtures, especially mixed breeding, shows man following God's steps. As God separated Israel from among the nations to be his own possession, so they must maintain their holy identity by not intermarrying with the nations. So the theology is that God does this, 
but then practically it is to distinguish and separate the children of Israel from the heathen around them. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, you see this in terms of a major emphasis. They were not to be like the children of Canaan. They were not to be like the pagans in the land. They were not to be like the heathen that populated the earth at that time in that place. And so in Deuteronomy 7, you have the mandate for holy war. And if you look at verse 1, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them nor show mercy to them. No political alliances with the pagans. That's the mandate there at the end of verse 2. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. You're not supposed to co-govern with the heathen. You're supposed to dispossess them from the land. Notice as well, there's not supposed to be any social alliances, according to verses 3 and 4. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter uh, for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. It's obvious. You start, you marry one of them, and it won't be long before you're worshiping alongside of them. So no political, no social, but then notice thirdly, no religious alliances with the people of the land. Verse 5, but thus their altars, uh, I'm sorry, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. So when it comes to the major, we see this idea of separation, distinctiveness from the heathen around them. But there's also the minor application, the way that you eat, the way that you dress, the way that you rotate your crops, the way that you, you manage your crops, the way that you manage your herd, the way that you manage your livestock. All of that is supposed to be different from the heathen about you. So again, we drop into a passage like this, and we think it's a bit odd, but we need to understand that God wants them to be separate from the nations around them. The nations around them are being dispossessed for their godlessness and their wretchedness and their evil in the sight of a holy God. So we've got this instruction on livestock and garments in verse 19, and then notice the instruction concerning relations with a slave girl in verses 20 to 22. We're going to leave it here with this whole idea of mixed breeding. And again, Wenham explains, it is not obvious why it should be grouped with regulations dealing with agriculture. Often slave girls would be foreigners, and this might explain why it is inserted after the ban on mixtures in verse 19. But as we look specifically at verses 20 to 22, there's a bit of a difference in other passages that speak like this. We see something like this, not altogether the same, but in Exodus chapter 21, dealing with slave girls. And then we have a list of detailed instruction concerning sexual immorality, not just here in Leviticus chapter 18, but specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 22. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, specifically at verses 13 to 30, we see emphasis on various sins that are engaged in by godless people in the commonwealth. 
And here, specifically, this verse, 1920, is somewhat similar to something that you see there in Deuteronomy 22. So I just want to look at this passage in a bit of detail. Notice first in verse 20, the nature of the sin. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine. Now, a concubine was sort of a second wife, oftentimes used for producing heirs or um, um, uh, other, uh, other functions within the family. Um, they did have legal recognition and legal status, not the same as a wife, but they did have protection in the law from God Most High. You'll see that the law builds in protections for the vulnerable and for the people that are easy, easy to sort of stomp on in a body politic. But then notice here, she has not been at all been redeemed nor given her freedom. So it's dealing with a slave. It's dealing with one that is subordinate. So the Israelite man or an Israelite man lies carnally with a betrothed concubine. Now notice the status of this particular woman. She has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom. And then for this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. Now if you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, specifically at verse or chapter 22, I think that Deuteronomy 22, especially verses 23 to 30, are very important in terms of sexual ethics. I think there's a lot of people outside of the church, unfortunately those within the church because of muddy thinking, get verses 23 to 27 wrong, specifically verses 25 to 27. Essentially what you have in verses 23 and 24 is the seduction of a betrothed woman, and that woman is compliant. That woman goes along with it. And that woman is therefore along with the man to be executed. In verses 25 to 27, you have the rape of a betrothed woman in the countryside. So it's a different situation. She is violated. She is forced into this. So when we look at our particular passage, I would argue that the woman, this un, uh, slave woman in Leviticus 19.20 does comply with the man who lay with her. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom, for this there shall be scourging. Uh, some commentators apply that only to the female, others to the male and to the female. For the sake of argument, I'll apply it to the male and the female. For this there shall be scourging, but they shall not be put to death because she was not free. So that's the difference in the application of this law. She was a slave. Now, we might think, well, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, if a man goes into uh, a, a woman that, that is compliant, then, then both of them are to be executed. That shows the gravity of the sin, at least as far as he's concerned, because he's executed as a result. But in this particular instance, with the slave girl, neither of them are executed. But the man is punished. The woman is punished. The difference, again, is the reality that she is a slave. In Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 24, that woman is not a, a slave. That woman is betrothed to a husband. And again, she is compliant with the man that goes into her. And therefore, both of them are to be executed. As I said, verses 25 to 27 deals with rape. The woman cries out, but there was nobody there to hear her. And so therefore, only the man who engages in the rape 
rape is actually executed for his crime. But back to Leviticus 19, again, this may seem harsh to us, it may sound untoward to us, it may sound a bit vicious to us, but she is not liable to execution. She's not free, and as a result, she's not punished as a free woman would have been. If she was free, she would have been executed for this particular crime. But because she's a slave, there is this built-in, I guess we'd say, protection for her in terms of this particular breach of covenant law. Now, as far as the man is concerned, notice the punishment with reference to his sin in verses 21 and 22. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, a ram as a trespass offering. Remember that the sin offering was most likely for unintentional sin. The trespass offer offering was for intentional sin. This was an intentional sin. Whoever lies carnally with a woman who is betrothed to a man as a concubine and who has not at all been redeemed nor given her freedom. So this man has to offer up a sacrifice. So he takes his sacrifice and he brings it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and it's a, a ram as a trespass offering. It's a very significant offering. Again, it shows the gravity of the nature of his sin and crime. And then it says, the priest shall make atonement for him with, uh, uh, for uh, with, I'm sorry, for him with the ram of the trespass offering before the Lord for his sin which he has committed. And the sin which he has committed shall be forgiven him. So this is indeed a sin and this is indeed a situation that necessitates a costly sacrifice on his part. And then notice, still under this mixed breeding, is the instruction concerning fruit in the promised land in verses 23 to 25. When you come into the land and have planted all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as uncircumcised or unclean. I think that's the emphasis there. Three years it shall be as uncircumcised to you. It shall not be eaten. So when you come into the land of Canaan, which again reiterates the promise, this is where they're heading. This is not a mystery. Nobody's you know, kind of wondering, where are we supposed to go from here? God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to give them a land. And so they're getting, uh, uh, they're, they're at Sinai now, they're getting this law, they're getting this instruction. After uh, Leviticus is over, we get to the book of Numbers, and then they go and they start their journey in the wilderness. Now it's ultimately the second generation that enters into the land of promise, but this is the law code. So for three years, you shall uh, treat it as uncircumcised, it shall, be, uh, shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, a praise to the Lord. So you dedicate it to God Almighty. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, we're not supposed to take a, a, a statement like that and say, well, in order to actually get good things, I need to give. It's just the commensurate blessing of God. When you honor the Lord with your wealth, God is good, and God oftentimes returns to you an abundant uh, uh, harvest or blessing. So we don't give to get, but we give to obey God, and in that obedience to God, God very often blesses us in kind, and he returns good things to us. And then the fifth year they get to eat. So verse 25, and in the fifth year you may eat its fruit that it may yield to you its increase. I am the Lord your God. Now that brings us then to the prohibition against pagan practices in verses 26 to 28. 
Again, these are all sort of bunched together, so we conclude that it's dealing with one particular theme. I'm going to argue that way with reference to verses 29 and 30 as well. It's not just a random statement in verse 30 in terms of Sabbath keeping. It is a corrective to the violation of verse 29. So, but back to verses 26 to 20, uh, 28. You shall not eat anything with the blood. Now, there's already been that prohibition in Leviticus up to this point. Leviticus chapter 17. They are prohibited from ingesting blood. Most likely, the emphasis here is blood used in pagan rituals. Blood used in pagan rituals. Matthew Poole explains it this way. The Jews write that the Egyptians and other nations, when they offered sacrifices to the devils, did eat part of the sacrifices beside the blood which was kept in basins for that end, which also they believed to be, as it were, the special food of the devils. They would literally eat right over basins of blood. That's not just some old Puritan commentator. This is what the moderns tell us as well. He was just shorter and more succinct and, and and briefer in terms of that particular practice. So again, the general prohibition against ingesting blood in Leviticus 17, but here in verses 26 to 28, we have specific things that the pagans, that the heathens did. And this is what God is cautioning them against. Again, if you're eating blood the way the pagans do, it won't be long before you're worshiping the gods of the pagans. Same as we trace through this. Notice, you shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. Most likely a pagan pro uh, 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 project. It wasn't, you know, I want you just to look differently for the sake of looking differently. The, the, the emphasis is most likely on a pagan practice, as is verse 28, you shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, probably mourning rites that the pagans engaged in, nor tattoo any marks on you, I am the Lord. And so the significance of the ritual there specifically in verse 28 is seen for the dead. You shall not make these cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. I think the idea is, is that the pagans engaged in these particular things in association with the worship of their gods, the sacrifice to their gods, and therefore the children of Israel are being told not to do that. When you go into the land, you, you may say, well, I'm not going to actually worship their gods. Well, if you participate with them in that act, it won't be long before you are bowing down to their gods. Now notice third, the prohibition against sacred prostitution in verses 29 and 30. I think the prostitution there is most likely sacred in the sense of temple prostitution. Temple prostitution. When you move into the land of Canaan, when Baal becomes that sort of object of worship, I, we, we heard an explanation of this on Sunday night, the way that the, the, the worshipers of Baal engaged in worship was to fornicate, it was to copulate, and it was to try and entice Baal and his consort to do likewise and then fertilize the ground, fertilize the land. It was a rite that was employed in order to worship their gods. And so the emphasis in verse 29, do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot, lest the land fall into harlotry. Now, that's a general principle as well. Obviously, you're not supposed, well, I'm not, I'm not bringing, her, bringing her up for harlotry in the temple, so, so it's okay. No, no, that's not what I'm suggesting. But the connection to verse 30, 
We've already had a statement concerning Sabbath keeping, specifically in verse 3. Notice, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. The fact that verse 30 comes again, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. I take that as the corrective to verse 29. Do not prostitute your daughter to cause her to be a harlot and to fill the temples and the sanctuaries with that kind of conduct as the pagan or the heathen do around you. You're not supposed to do that lest the land fall into harlotry. Both physically, the act itself is wicked, but spiritually, the Bible identifies harlotry, spiritual harlotry, as turning from the living and true God and going after false gods, going after that which is not God. So verse 20, uh, 30 is another reminder concerning the Sabbath, but in the connection to verse 29. We don't want the land to fall into harlotry and the land to become full of wickedness. What's a good protective? What's a good help? What's a good strengthening agent in terms of the body politic and their religious approach to life? Keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. In other words, the day of worship and the place of worship are to be revered by the people of God and kept pure for the purpose of the worship of God. Now notice, fourthly, the prohibition against necromancy. And again, this simply means to communicate with the dead. Verse 31. So we've already seen uh, uh, verse 26. Look back at verse 26. You shall not eat anything with the blood. I did sort of skip over. Nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. So there's a, a prohibition against using means, uh, things, uh, tokens, uh, weather patterns, clouds, whatever sorts of things that you can manipulate to try to engage in divination or soothsaying. Here in verse 31, it's specifically speaking about mediums and familiar spirits. So give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them. Notice, to be defiled by them, I am the Lord your God. This has a defiling effect upon the, the people of God. When you go after the pagans' sort of uh, uh, methods and, and, and gods and, and the manner in which they worship, that defiles. It doesn't leave you neutral. It doesn't just mean that you're not doing it right. It actually, you know, gives you a, a degree of degradation. And so that's the argument specifically here. Now, if you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, more of a sort of a amplified version of this prohibition against soothsaying and against mediums and against uh, necromancy and that sort of thing. So basically, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the chapter is about the priest and the prophet in Israel. The priest and the prophet in Israel. Israel was not going to be like the nations around them. They weren't going to have soothsayers. They weren't going to have mediums. They weren't going to have necromancers. They weren't going to have, you know, holy dice. They weren't going to have sort of clouds or whatever it is that you might look at to try to, you know, divine what's going to happen. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you have first the provision for priests in verses 1 to, 18, uh, 1 to 8. Secondly, the prohibition of sorcery in verses 9 to 14. Notice, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or 
or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you will dispossess, listened to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. One commentator on the book of Deuteronomy, or actually it was 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 28, uh, David Samura says, the very need for such prohibitions is an indication that the problem of necromancy and of religious practices related to the dead was widespread in ancient Canaan. In other words, when you read all these warnings, it's not God just, you know, being a killjoy. God just trying to regulate and rule every jot and tittle of your life because he's hate, you know, he hates you. No, the, this is what you're going to face. You faced it in Egypt. God's delivered you out of Egypt. Now you're coming into the land of Canaan. There's going to be a lot of rivals, a lot of rival deities, a lot of rival worship practices, a lot of things that if you are not careful, that will damn your soul. So you need to be very careful and very cautious. So there's this provision for priests, verses 1 to 8, the prohib uh, prohibition of sorcery, verses 9 to 14, and then the promise of a prophet to come in verses 15 to 19. This establishes the prophetic class with specific emphasis on the terminus of the prophetic ministry, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in chapter 18 at verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. When on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the, the Lord Jesus, as it were, blazed forth in his glory, uh, the, the divine testimony came, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then what were the next two words? Hear him. So you've got Moses and Elijah there, there, and now they see the blazing glory of Jesus Christ. And the father says, hear him. Not don't care about Moses and get rid of Elijah, but he was identifying the prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15 was now standing right before their eyes. So there's this terminus in the Lord Jesus Christ, but this establishes the succession of the prophetic ministry. Verse 16, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore lest I die. And then verses 20 to 22 speak concerning the penalty for the false prophet. The penalty for the false prophet, that's death. I mean, they took religious heresy seriously back in the day. Uh, there was no toleration for false prophets. You were executed. If you, you claimed to be speaking in the name of God and you said something that didn't come out to be right, or even if you said something that was right, but it was in the name of another God, Deuteronomy 13, you're still subject to execution for that blasphemy. So there is this condemnation of sorcery, soothsaying, necromancy, mediums, witchcraft, all throughout the Bible. And there's that interesting case in 1 Samuel 28. You can turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 28, a very sad passage of scripture for Saul. I mean, it's instructive for us, but for Saul, it's pathetic. Absolutely, positively pathetic. He needs a word from on high as to whether or not to go into battle. And of course, God's not speaking to him anymore because he's cut himself off. And so he seeks out the witch at Endor. And when we look at this particular passage, we'll notice that, that she does bring something up. Now, some suggest it really is Samuel. Others suggest that it's not Samuel. The point is, is that something was there. 
So notice, specifically at verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Now, here's the point. Again, whether you identify it as Samuel or you do not, that's not the point for right now. The point is simply this. God doesn't con condemn these practices because they don't work. Never forget that. There are weird things that happen. There are strange phenomena. When you read through Scripture, in fact, that Deuteronomy 13 passage, a false prophet may actually do or engage in signs and wonders. But if he's speaking in the name of a false god, he's still supposed to be executed. But it's not a denial that he has this ability. The magicians at the time of Moses. Now, was this a supernatural or just a sort of a natural manipulation? There are strange phenomena that happen. Davis makes the observation, we must remember that Scripture describes such practices not as futile, but as pagan. Yahweh forbids Israel to use these means, not because they do not work, but because they're wicked. So the argument isn't don't do these things because you'll never get an answer. The argument is don't do these things because it's an abomination to the Lord. Israel was to be spoken to by the prophet. Israel was to speak to God through the priesthood. Israel was to have that divine uh, ministry or that, that ministry divinely appointed by God, not soothsayers and fortune tellers and witches at Endor. So it's important that we understand that. And then the emphasis in verse 31 is to be defiled by them. Truck with godless things produces bad things in the soul of a man. There is degradation that results from contact with those things that are godless in and of themselves. Notice then, fifthly, the responsibility to honor the elderly. This, by the way, isn't confined to the Old Testament ceremonial law. Well, it prefigured Jesus. Jesus is here. Now we can sit on the bus while the old guy, you know, has to stand there hanging on. Get up, honor the presence of the hoary head. We see this repeated in 1 Timothy chapter 5, specifically at verses 1 and 2. Timothy's not supposed to rebuke an older man. He's supposed to treat him with love and esteem and respect. And again, this is a carryover from the middle section here in Leviticus 19. We saw specifically in Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 18, the emphasis on neighborly love. We saw an emphasis there on not doing things that would, that would degrade the weak. Look specifically at verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Same emphasis here in verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. And then notice, and fear your God. I suggest those things go hand in hand. When you got a culture like ours where courtesy is gone, where there's just absolute wretchedness and lawlessness at the level of basic decency, that's a nation or a, a, a people that don't fear God. 
The fear of God brings us to that place where we esteem our superiors, where we revere the older men among us and the older women, where we give up our bus seat, where we do those kinds of things that, that serve and, 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 and help facilitate for the weak or the, 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 the marginalized. So we're supposed to see here this respect and esteem given to our, to our elders. And then same principle applied to the stranger in verses 33 and 34. If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you're not, you shall not mistreat him. Well, he's a stranger, and typically the idea being is a, a, a resident alien, a man that's entered into the body politic. He has taken on him whatever you know the, the specific responsibilities are in terms of that body politic. Therefore, you're not supposed to mistreat him. If he has proselytized his way in in terms of religion, then he is your equal. If he has come in just because he wants to live with you in the land that the Lord is giving you, then treat him still with respect. In Exodus chapter 12, we find that the people that come out of the, of the Exodus wasn't just Israelites. In Exodus 12, 38, it says, A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. So it wasn't just Israelites. So Israelites are told that you need to treat the stranger, the resident alien, in your midst with that love and respect. Verse 34, the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And then notice the argument, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, they weren't supposed to conclude, well, we weren't treated well when we were strangers in the land of Egypt. Brethren, the golden rule isn't do unto others as they have proven to do unto you. I think we mess up there. We do unto others as we want them to do to us, even if they don't, right? Isn't that the rule? It's not only treat somebody with the kind of respect that you want if they do it reciprocally. No, you, you do to others what you want them to do to you, irrespective of whether they do it to you or not. So the Israelites weren't able to say, well, you know, we were strangers and we got treated pretty poorly. There was Sihon, there was Og. These guys were just horrible people, filthy masters, all that sort of thing. No, you treat them in a manner that is consistent with the law of God because God has treated you well when you were strangers. And then finally, notice the necessity of fair trade. We've already seen in terms of the judicial court an emphasis on no injustice in judgment. If you look back at verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer, probably not basic garden variety gossip, but talebearer in terms of a civil court proceeding or criminal court proceeding. Uh, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. Probably the idea being is that you're, you've got a big mouth outside the courtroom and that could jeopardize your neighbor. So we see it there in the judiciary. Here we see it in verse 35, connected to trade. So you shall do no injustice in judgment and then that's elucidated or it's explained or amplified in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hand. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Again, brethren, we don't say, well, that's ceremonial, it's done now so we can rip our neighbors off. No, as the confession says, 
uh, partly holding forth divers' instructions of moral duties. Those moral duties do not get suspended in the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. Those moral duties can be traced back to the commandment, uh, the Ten Commandments of God, and specifically here, the, the, the prohibition against theft. So you shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, honest ephah, and an honest hand. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, when we come to this land of Canaan, this land of promise, once we dispossess all the rabble, then we're supposed to function in a manner that's consistent with the law of God. We're not supposed to cheat one another. We're not supposed to lie against each other. We're not supposed to rip one another off. And so therefore, verse 37, you shall observe all my statutes and all my judgments and perform them. I am the Lord. Now it's here that we'll obviously see that with many of these things, there would be the inability on the part of the children of Israel. So we've got the threefold division of the law. Then there's the three uses of the law. And the first use is to restrain the wickedness of men. The second is to tutor them or show them their need for the Savior. And then the third is the normative. How does a saved man live? Well, that pedagogical or child tutor function is all throughout the Old Testament law. These laws were designed to restrain the people. These laws were designed to govern the remnant who were walking by faith in the Son of God. But they as well were to teach the people their need for the Savior, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they themselves could not obey. They themselves would not fulfill what they swore to do in Exodus 24. All that the Lord commands we will do. So this law-breaking or this uh, uh, reality that they would face would always impress upon them the need for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, let us close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Leviticus and for the various laws that we find there. We know ultimately these laws show us our, our own sin and it shows us our need for the Savior. And we thank you that he was the perfect law keeper. We thank you that he was the substitute and the sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for his resurrection that third day and for his current session now. And we pray that his gospel would be proclaimed throughout the earth and many more people would come to a saving knowledge of him. And we just ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, any questions or comments? Comments, preferably. Yes. Get their results, but it's just wicked. Right? Yeah. Further, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, 